Thanks everyone. Please help me to welcome Tim from London, England. Thank you. Thanks. Gabrielle, is that is the recording turned on? It is on. It is on, okay, thanks. So uh, my name is Tim and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you for having me. Thank you to the organizers. You can't hear. Okay. I don't know if our tornmeister needs to turn the volume up or... You've got all the volume. Okay, so is that better? Yeah. Okay. Um, just make another noise if you can't hear at any point, okay? Um, thank you to the organisers of this. Thank you for coming along. Feel free to leave at any point. <laughs> uh, I don't speak on behalf of AA. I don't speak on, on behalf of anyone else. I'm just here to share some experience. If it's helpful, I'm thrilled. And if it's not, please don't worry about it. There are plenty of other people in AA much wiser than me, go and listen to them. Um, and there are lots of matters uh, that are by their nature controversial in AA. And by the very nature of this type of event with questions presented in advance, people get to ask the controversial questions that they don't want to discuss at their home group or don't pose to their sponsor. So we might touch upon some things on which people of goodwill disagree, and that's fine. No one needs to leave the room or argue. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of background before we get into... I mean, it's going to be basically the questions you've posed and I'm going to share some experience. Um, but I want to give a tiny little bit of background first and I'm aware there might be some people who are in a rehab or a treatment centre and so I'm going to, going to give a little bit of a, an introduction to AA through the lens of my experience. Um, my date of sobriety is the 24th of July 1993. I was 21 when I got sober, I'm 48 now. Um, for that, I don't have to thank myself. So we, we're very good in AA at giving rounds of applause, but the round of applause goes to AA for any sobriety that I have. Um, and to an enormous number of people that took time out of their busy lives to share their experience with me. They needn't have come to meetings necessarily for their own sake, but they came, as Dr. Bob said, because they owed a, a moral obligation to new people like me in 1993 coming in looking for a solution. So everything I have today, I've uh, acquired from someone else uh, in AA. I've put, put all the pieces together like a magpie, but I haven't originated any ideas. There are no new ideas. They're just channeled from, from somewhere else. Um, and I'm going to run briefly through uh, the 12 steps, what they are in essence to me, and what my AA life looks like today, because that will give a good context for the rest. Um, I don't know about your drinking, my drinking baffled me. And the reason it baffled me, as I was saying in a meeting the other night, um, I could understand the first half bottle of gin. That made complete sense, as it made me feel better. 
it took away the pain, it took away the despair, it was a trap door into another world. And in that other world, I was free. I didn't know what was constraining me in this world, but in that other world, I was free. The first half bottle of gin makes sense to me. The first bottle of wine makes sense to me. The first five pints of beer makes sense to me. What doesn't, what didn't make sense to me for many years um, was that I would go beyond that point. I would be perfectly drunk, as drunk as a person needs to be to get the relief they need to get from whatever is going on inside. I was as drunk as I needed to be, but a demon inside me said, you're going to drink more, and yes, it's going to get ugly, it's going to get violent, you're going to cause trouble, but we're going to do it anyway. Now that did not make sense, because I liked how the first half bottle of gin made me feel. I never liked how the second half bottle of gin made me feel, but I went there again and again and again. So the question is why? And when I was 10 years sober, uh, I'd had a break from AA. I hadn't had a break from sobriety, but I'd had a break from AA. It's good to get away, isn't it, occasionally? Um, A change is as good as a rest, they say. And I came back to AA with the question, how do I know that I didn't drink buckets and buckets? Uh, Because I I was young and stupid and foolish and impressionable and just doing what teenagers do. How, How do I know that I actually need to stay sober forever? Because it's it's a tall order to say you can never drink safely, therefore you can never drink again. Right? We live one day at a time, fine. But the that's that small print, the big news is that I can if I can't drink safely, I can never drink again. If I'm gonna make a commitment to do that and do everything that AA is asking me to do, there's got to be a particularly good reason. And There's a great line in the doctor's opinion. I don't know how quotey I'm going to be today, but here's a quote. Um, It didn't satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental defectors. That's a long sentence, and it's got a lot of words. Um, To put that in English, which I can understand, is that the reason I drank buckets and not just a couple of drinks was not because I was thick, it's not because I was mad, it's not because I was unhappy. Because, I don't know about you, I drank buckets when I was perfectly happy. I drank buckets when I knew perfectly well what I was doing. At the beginning of my drinking, I, was, I wasn't particularly mad. Um, I, was un, I, I was deeply unhappy, frankly, but I, I wasn't psychotic. I did have psychotic episodes towards the end of my drinking. At the beginning of my drinking, I wasn't having those, but my drinking was still alcoholic in the sense that you turn the on button on, and I tried to press the off button a couple of hours later, there is no off button. So the question is, why doesn't the off button work? And those other explanations for me, as it is for the people that wrote this book, those other explanations were not satisfactory. If I drank the way I drank because I was unhappy, why did I do it when things were great? When I was sitting on a hillside looking down over Florence with someone I was in love with, whatever that meant. Um, 
having had, I don't know how much wine we'd had, we'd had a lot, but we both knew that if we carried on, we'd end up in a, uh, in a fight of some sort, and we carried on, and we ended up in a fight. Why couldn't I just stay in the happy zone? Um, there is no other explanation to me than I'm just built like it. I was like that when I was 14, 15, I was like that when I was 21, so I'm probably still like it now because I'm built the way I'm built. And if I have any doubt about that, I don't know about people in Sydney, people in London occasionally have problems other than alcohol. <laughs> Maybe a little, a little problem with food or a little problem with nicotine or a little problem with caffeine or a little problem with sex or dysfunctional relationships. And my experience with the, the physical ones of those, you know, with sugar and with nicotine, is that when, you press, when I press play, I can't press stop. So if I'm built like that with everything else, I, I don't need to test what would happen if, I'm, if I were to have a drink today. I just trust the physical craving that the big book talks about. Does not mean I sense it physically. It means this compulsion to have more and more and more originates in my body and my body doesn't know that my spirit has been awakened. My body is just going to do what it's always done. Um, and that leaves, I mean, that's a bad enough problem to say I can never drink safely again. Uh, but the real problem is that I have a mind that will persuade me to drink again despite my experience. And that's the thing which is completely terrifying. So I had six months in AA uh, between February and July 1993. Uh, now, with full awareness that I was an alcoholic, surrounded by people explaining alcoholism in great detail on a daily basis, convinced that I, I loved AA right from when I joined it. But I, I hadn't been... Um, invited anywhere for a very long time by the end of my drinking and here was somewhere that, you know at the time 550 locations I was freely invited to every week in London there was there were people to be with who didn't kick me out I loved I knew I was in the right place and yet I'm capable of walking out of a meeting walking up the road walking into a pub ordering a pint of beer drinking it ordering a pint of beer, drinking it, going to an off-license, buying a bottle of spirits, downing a bottle of spirits, wanting to create mischief, throwing myself in front of a car, creating a traffic accident, getting arrested. In that order. Um, so knowledge itself does nothing to prevent me from drinking. If it did, I couldn't walk out of an AA meeting. People say that the ism of alcoholism is incredibly short memory. But I did not have a generalised memory problem. You know, I, I'm allergic to all sorts of things in the world, and I've never forgotten that I'm allergic to those. So this would suggest, if it was a memory problem, it would be generalised. But this so-called memory problem seems to kick in with alcohol, with nicotine, and with a few other things. Just those... So maybe it's not a memory problem, maybe it's a truth suppression problem. There's a bit of me which so desperately wants what alcohol offered and promised, 
brackets, but never fully delivered. There's a bit of me which will always remember that. And it will do anything, anything to get me to drink again. And that's what was going on. That in those first six months, I was physically in AA, but I wasn't doing what most of what AA was asking me to do. Because, of course, the rules that apply to other people don't apply to me. Why would I need to do everything that everybody else does? Um, and when you watch American television shows uh, about AA or which feature AA, the story is always someone is sent to AA and you, you, you only see the meetings. You, you very rarely see the sponsorship. You very rarely see the, the programme that people apply. And this is, seems to be the view in society that AA is a place you go. And to me, the, the big mistake was believing that I was going to get well just by going to meetings. In the same way that it would be foolish, actually, to think that you're going to get a suntan by sitting in a travel agency. <laughs> As you sit there, reading the brochure together, taking Ted, well, you read a paragraph, then I read a paragraph. <laughs> and then you wonder why you haven't got a suntan. You need to actually go on the trip, and the trip doesn't happen in the meeting. If you don't go to the meeting, uh, you don't have the brochure, you don't know how to book the holiday. So I needed to go on the trip, uh, which was internal. I needed to take the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, to cut a very long story short, because this is not going to be a three-hour ID pitch, I'll tell you that for, for nothing. Um, I tried all sorts of ways of doing AA. And what I finally concluded um, was that I, I did ultimately what my sponsor has been telling me to do for about 10 years, which is dummy down. Um, uh, as my friend Tom says, I'm educated beyond my intelligence level, and this is dangerous. Um, I decided, in the end, to just read what the big book says, and to go through it, and to say, is this me? Is this me? Am I like this? Do I drink like this? Do I suffer like this? And then it's going to give me some things to do, and I, I find the next thing to do, and I do it, and when I've finished, I come back and I find the next thing to do. And I, and I eventually, and it's a very unusual thing to do in AA, there are lots of little catchphrases that people use to not do that. I'll give you some examples. So when you get to steps eight and nine are about making amends to people, and people use the phrase, well, there are some people I need to make amends to, you know, my family and exes, but it's in God's time. <laughs> So I don't need to do anything today. I don't need to lift the phone or God needs to present me with the opportunity. Or I, I've spent six months on my step four, the moral inventory, or, or, or actually uh, spent about 17 minutes spread evenly over those six months. <laughs> but it's okay because it's easy does it. And that's an AA slogan. So it must be okay to do it that slowly because it's progress, not perfection. And perfectionism, perfectionism is one of my 
character defects. <laughs> so if I just rush at this, then I'm just going to be doing it to like please other people. So I, I mustn't do that. So I'm just, I'm just going to take it easy and look after myself because the person I harmed the most in my drinking was myself. And if I just beat, you know, my basic problem is guilt. So that if, you know, if, and low self-worth. So if I beat myself up too much with this step four, um, I'm just actually deepening the problem and making it more likely that I drink again. And my friend Susan, she was doing her step four and she drank again, so I'm not going to do it. And each individual element of that argument does make sense on some level. You can kind of see why someone would believe each one of those things. <clears throat> However, you put them all together, what do you end up with? Zero progress. Meanwhile, my alcoholism is waiting. And there is a line in, I think it's page 44, about there being but two alternatives. Uh, to, to, uh, or maybe it's not 44. It, it, but it talks about going on to the... Oh, it's a tw 25. Going on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation or accepting spiritual help. So it's like same idea on 44 with different words. Now, my illusion was that there was an option in between, which is to sit in the waiting room, which is very comfortable, cushions, food, um, and I'll make up my mind which of those two, you know, alcoholic death, spiritual life. I'll, I'll make up my mind later on, but I don't need to make up my mind now. But... That waiting room is full of trap doors and someone's pulling a lever and people are going through those trap doors and leaving AA whilst they're in the waiting room waiting to decide whether to die an alcoholic death or whether to pick up the kit of spiritual tools. And that's the thing which terrifies me. And that's why in my first year uh, I, just, um, I, I just got on with it because I had no other choice. I, I knew I was going to continue drinking unless I, and it's, it's terribly unpopular to say this, but um, uh, certainly as far as my sponsor was concerned, to take the cotton wool out of my, which orifice is it? I take the cotton wool out of my ears and put it in my mouth. That's the right way around, yeah. Uh, now, I did need to talk, 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 but I found other people that also needed to talk, 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 and we did that at the same time at coffee after the meeting. <laughs> But when it came to me and my sponsor, my approach needed to be, yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir. Why? Because he, he was doing substantially better than me. So I trusted him. And nothing I ever did under his uh, kind but acerbic instruction did me any harm. Uh, to run through briefly what the, the rest of the 12 steps are, and I'm gonna put this in the simplest possible terms. Actually, I'm going to restate step one. Step one to me, and this is just how it seems to me sitting here today, I may change my mind in this summary on the way home this evening. Um, step one says, unless I have some kind of spiritual awakening, which is a fundamental shift in my relationship with the universe, I will drink again. If I drink, I may never stop. Step two says, whatever you are doing in here clearly works for you. I'm going to find out what works and do it, and it's going to work for me. B, 
because it works for you and I'm not so fundamentally different. Step three, let's get on with it and trust that I'm gonna be okay even though I'm clearly not gonna be okay. I'm gonna trust that I'm gonna be okay if I put one foot in front of the other and do what I'm told. Again, the notion of doing as you're told is very unmodern, it's very unpopular. But it, it does work in certain contexts and what matters to me is not what is politically popular or socially popular, it's what works, that's what matters to me. Because my life is on the line. With my brother was an alcoholic who died in his 20s of his alcoholism. So I'm in no doubt as to where it goes in my family. Um, placing myself at the disposal of my higher power, this higher power we talk about, essentially to me means that um, I'm not, the way I lived before AA was I was concerned primarily with my welfare and your conduct. And that needs to be turned 180 degrees to being concerned with my conduct and your welfare. What can I contribute to the world, not what can I get out of the world. But the problem is standing between me and that laudable aim is me. And my almost undying, unceasing loyalty to my own welfare. And what step four is, is a very simple catalogue of what I believe, what I think, and what I do. And you put that together with the results I was getting from what I believe, what I think, and what I do. And I shared it with someone else in step five who didn't think any the less of me for it, which is why we don't pay sponsors. It's the, I think if there are a hundred reasons, but it's the most important one. Uh, I told the truth to therapists who were, I'm sure, very good, but they were paid to be nice to me. My sponsor wasn't. So if he was nice to me after he'd heard my step five, maybe I wasn't so bad after all. The things I did were still as bad, but I wasn't so bad. And my step five, when I shared all of the catalogue of what was wrong with how I'd been living, the step five put clear water between me and the way I'd been living. I stopped being my character defects. They were just tools that I'd been using and they were the wrong tools, but they weren't who I was. And I, I, that's where the freedom started. And in step six and seven, all I have to do is to look at the results I've been getting so far and to say to myself, do I really want to continue being this unhappy? Uh, up until I undertook the AA programme, um, I wanted to keep my views, my perceptions, my stories, my narratives, my understanding of myself, my understanding of you, but I just wanted to not feel so bad or suicidal the whole time. And I had to choose in step six, do I want to be right? Or do I want to be happy? And um, it makes people very uncomfortable, that question. Because, well, there must be a way of being right and happy. <laughs> and the funny thing there is, there is a way of being right and happy, but you've got to change your mind and adopt a set of beliefs which currently appear to be wrong, which you'll resist massively. 
But what I was told is, you won't like the ideas, you won't welcome the ideas, but if you apply the ideas, you'll see that they work, and then they will show you that they are true by the fact that they work. And I've got a coffee machine at home where when it's functioning well, it makes this nice little purring noise. And if you stick the little pod in the wrong way round or, or get it at the wrong angle, it makes the most frightful clatter. And if you don't, if, if, if you don't um, descale it, regularly, it starts making the most frightful, there are all sorts of things that can go wrong with it. So when the coffee machine is being operated in accordance with manufacturer's instructions, it makes a, a soft purring sound. When it isn't, it makes a horrible sound. And I got to AA, I made a horrible sound. <laughs> um, I think it's safe to conclude I wasn't being operated in accordance with manufacturer's instructions. So all of the ideas that were given to me, like, you know, you are spirit, you know, lovely ideas, which seem completely absurd, when I live in accordance with those ideas, I make a soft purring sound as opposed to the frightful clatter I made when I got here. And it's partly for that reason, too, that I conclude that I must be being operated in accordance with manufacturer's instructions when I'm following spiritual principles, because the system just works better. I mean, if nothing else, I sleep better. What is that but a sign that something is going right? Um, steps eight and nine. A series of conversations with people uh, you've caused trouble with. And yes, there's a follow-up which can take years. It's taken years to mend the relationship with my mother, amongst other people. But it's a simple set of conversations. And when I finally made them, I made a big round of amends when I was about nine months sober, nine months to a year, and another round when I was 15, and there have been various other amends through the years. Um, the fear of other people left me, and my fear of other people was what has always separated me from the rest of humanity. Fear combined with no small dose of loathing, contempt, and disdain. Um, and occasionally overpowering attraction, but that never lasts mercifully. Um, but essentially fear of other people. The best relationships are where you have the fear and the contempt and the attraction all at the same time. That, that, who needs Netflix when you have one of those going on? But anyway, I digress. Um, fear of other people. And I discovered why I feared other people. I, I thought for many years it was all sorts of things in my childhood, and there probably is a link there. But I think those things in my childhood dictated the particular forms in which the fear took. They weren't the origin of the fear. They were the canvas screens on which the fear was projected. Um, if my life had been different, I don't think I'd have been less, less frightened. It, it just would have taken different forms. Uh, I know people whose lives are fated, who have had nothing bad happen to them, who are just as full of fear. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any correlation amongst the people I know between fear levels and 
the extent of traumatic experiences in the past. It all seems pretty even amongst people I know. Um, where that fear came from, uh, I mean, it's a, you could talk all afternoon about that, but it came from a couple of things. It came from building up a catalogue of hundreds of people who I had mistreated or slighted or stolen from or was cruel towards or gossiped about. And each one of those was a reason why I felt guilty and someone needed to get me for it. And my job was to then race around in disguise, hoping that no one was going to get me. And the other reason, uh, I don't know if you ever do this, I, I very occasionally will have what my friend calls attack thoughts about other people, little, little scripts. And it feels, I mean, I can almost visualise little darts going out of my mind, hoping that those darts are going to hit people, having arguments with people that are not in the room. But any kind of negative thinking about other people, or about humanity, or about groups in society, or political parties, or whatever it is, or God, or whatever it is, each one of those thoughts in which I attack you, or me, or someone else, increases the guilt, and the guilt invites retribution, and I become frightened. And I, I don't see the connection until I stop mentally attacking people. Brackets, that's what forgiveness is. It's not saying, you're still a jerk, but I'm going to forgive you. It's removing the sense that you're a jerk. I may observe that you are acting in an unloving way, but that's different than being a jerk. Because I recognise that when I'm loving in an, when I'm acting in an unloving way, I'm not doing it to hurt people. I'm doing it because it seems like the only option in the moment. And when I've asked the ego for guidance, it is the only option in the moment. It's the only show in town. And all knowledge of any other system is just not there. So when I see other people acting without love, that's all I'm seeing is someone acting without love. Someone who deserves love, who's acting without love. And that calls for me to love them, not to attack them or judge them. And those twin solutions of forgiveness and amends reconnected me or maybe connected me for the first time to humanity. And my job after that was to uh, spend the rest of my life, as I say, contributing within AA, outside AA. And yes, I've got a career and a, and a house, well, not a house, it's a tiny flat, and a family, and so on, married, in a sense. Um, I've got all those things, but those are just channels for me to love other people, that's all. And that's what steps 10, 11, and 12 are. The very simple way of presenting steps 10, 11, and 12 is, I get up in the morning, I say to my higher power, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What spirit do you want, to, do you want me to do these things in? I debrief at night. During the course of the day, I get to ask God to keep me to stay on that beam of God's will. And my job is just to be helpful to other people. And that is all. And I don't manage it anywhere near perfectly. But that's it. Uh, what that means in terms of AA is I have two home groups. Um, I do service at both of those home groups. I do service within the AA structure in Great Britain. I'm a conference delegate. I've just come off a national subcommittee for armed services liaison, where we carry the AA message to the armed services and to charities and public bodies which support the armed services and also to the whole veterans 
community and there are five and a half million veterans in <coughs> Great Britain, um, a staggering proportion of which are alcoholic. So that keeps me busy and sponsoring an eye-watering number of people uh, keeps me busy. If the, if the number isn't watering your eyes, well, maybe you need to go to some more meetings, put your hand up for sponsorship. Um, and and that, keeps me, that keeps me busy, it keeps me happy, and it keeps me peaceful. Um, I have an a absolute shed load of, of questions here. Does, and I'm happy to do questions from the floor. Does anyone have any questions so far? Because I'm here for you, I'm not here for me. <laughs> so I want you to have questions. Does anyone have any... Should we go straight into the questions submitted? There are some doozies, let me tell you. I've got one. Go on. Could you tell us how you got here and why you're here and where you came from and how you got invited? And how what? How I ended up here in Australia? Yeah, and how you came to be here and where you were invited. Okay. Yeah. Um, about five years ago, um, uh, I have a little, uh, I write some stuff anonymously online about my experiences in AA to carry the message. Someone who lives in Sydney five years ago was reading the blog and said, would you come over? Uh, not thinking I was going to say yes. I said, why not? <laughs> so I came over and I met a lot of people and made a lot of connections. Um, I was uh, formally invited by the uh, boomerang uh, convention and by the one in Auckland uh, where I think they get together to organise speakers to come in and the basic expenses of the economy flight plus the, the hotel for the period for that period um, is covered by the registration of the conventions I'm given to understand uh, all of my other expenses I'm paying so part of my flights I paid and so I'm, under, I'm here under my own steam, and I came as I was invited by, by Tris and by Gabrielle. So um, here to be helpful. <laughs> I'm not getting anything out of this other than the joy of being with you. <laughs> uh, any other questions before I launch in? <coughs> Why does the man pass the Can I answer? So, just for the tape, why does a man after 20 years drink again? I'll tell you how I almost drank after 17, which might be illustrative of why other people drink again. I've sponsored a lot of people who've uh, got drunk after many years and then come back to AA. Um, To cut a long story short, there's a long story behind this one. I got emotionally entangled with an AA member who was in the middle of relapse. And if there is anything in the material plane which is not allowed to happen, which I can't face, then I'm going to drink over it eventually. And in my heart at the time, there was a little voice that said, if this friend of yours doesn't make it, there's no point in even being here. And as soon as that thought was there, 
as soon as I had conditions on my sobriety. So my sobriety, it's worth staying sober if, and it was just one condition. Anything else, whether I, at that point, 17 years sober, whether I was working, whether I was not working, whether I had somewhere to live, whether I didn't have somewhere to live, I was trusting God on all of those. But there was one thing, I thought, if I lose this person, I don't know how I'm going to cope. And as soon as there was a condition on my sobriety, a little voice crept in and said, wouldn't it be easier if you were just drinking together? Because the fact that he's sober, he's, he's drunk and you're sober is a block between you. And I got out of there as fast as I could and I finally started to tell my sponsor the truth about the state I was in emotionally. Um, the other... Uh, I almost uh, relapsed around eight or nine years when I left AA. Um, one key feature of my alcoholism is that it's as though there's a ticking time bomb in my mind. And I don't know where it is. It can't be located. It can't be defused. But if it goes off, I've got to not be in charge of my life. I've got to have something else in charge of my life. And the ticking time bomb is that it talks in the big book about the mental obsession. And the terminology I find is not very helpful because obsession makes you think of preoccupation. You know, when someone is obsessed with a boy band, they think about the boy band the whole time. That's what people usually think about when they say obsession. But the obsession it talks about in the big book is not preoccupation with something is not thinking about it the whole time. It's a thought which you can't fully get rid of, which will come in unexpectedly, maybe every day, maybe once a year. But when it comes in, it overpowers all other thoughts and says, let's have a drink. It'll be fine this time. Now, I don't know when that is going to hit, but I drifted very far out of AA. I, was, I still practiced a religion. I still had a connection with a higher power, but I'd stopped coming to meetings, I'd, stop, I'd stopped sponsoring, I was of course doing no service. And bit by bit, I'd regained control of my own life. And there were some moments around eight, nine, ten years when the thought of a drink or the thought of a drug occurred to me, and I was aware I did not have a full defense against that. The thought started to seem plausible. Why? Because I was back in charge again. But also, the other element is that I only get real peace when I'm dissolved into the world. And by that I mean, um, almost everyone has had the experience of being at an AA meeting where everyone is laughing, you're having a great time, and for a moment you forget yourself. You forget that you're two days or two weeks or two months sober, that your life is in tatters, that... Everything is a disaster right now. You're having fun. You're connected. It's great. Now, the purpose of the steps is to generalize that so I get that feeling across my whole life. So that the oasis, which AA once was, that oasis expands and becomes my entire universe. And of course, the oasis, the opposite of the oasis, is the desert. And it's really easy, because I've done it several times, to drift, to, to get what AA gives me in the outside world. 
to drift away from AA, get lost in the material world, and I discover in the end I'm in the desert again. I don't know how I got there. I go back to an AA meeting and it sounds like they're talking Greek. And it's not because I'm in Athens, because I'm not in Athens. But it's like a different language and I can't connect again. And that's the strange thing about the rebuilding of the ego over the years, which is when I stop listening to God's voice and I start listening to the ego's voice, which sounds suspiciously like my own. <laughs> that an invisible barrier builds up between me and other people and I can no longer connect. And the more disconnected I get, the more alcohol seems like a good idea. So those are how I got close to drinking over various different points. Um, any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm talking it over. Yeah. And everything. And, uh, and also, it's very hard to get a sponsor. How do you get a sponsor? I've never had a sponsor. I had a sponsor for three, no, six weeks in the room. That was it. I've never been able to get a sponsor. Okay. So, uh, again, for the tape, I'm going to repeat parts of the question to respond to it. Um, uh, so, the, there's one element, which is how do you get a sponsor? And there's another element about the actual mechanics of doing a, a step four. Um, where I live in London, so obviously the, the geography of AA in Sydney is going to be different, but where I go to meetings in London, there are 950 groups, I think, across the city. Um, it's not as impressive a number as in New York or in Los Angeles, um, but it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, and for, for better or for worse, so this is not a judgment, it's just an observation, it's, it's by no means a criticism, at most of them, the topic of the conversation is how I've been doing this week. And there are, there's talk of alcohol, people talk about their drinking episodes, they talk about how grateful they are to be sober, and then they talk through their problems of the week. They get some relief, and this is great. Uh, it helps a lot of people. Um, there's a vanishingly tiny number of groups which have as part of their name Big Book or Step. And those are the groups which tend to be groaning with people who got experience with the steps. And if I would say to people, if you want to, if in London you want to find a sponsor, go to a big book group and go for three months and watch how people actually behave. <laughs> so don't just listen to them talking from the podium or talking to the floor. My home group, we go for dinner uh, after every week. On the Friday one, we've We've got about 45 people who come to the group and about 30, 35 go for dinner. On Saturday, we've got between 70 and 100 who come to the group and around 45, 50 go for dinner. And we encourage people to come along, come along to the group, come along for dinner, get to know people, test drive them by giving them 
um, giving these people situations in your life, saying, what would you do? Have you had this? Have you experienced this? How have you applied the program to this? To try out their solutions. If the solutions work, go back for more. If the solutions are a disaster, just say hello and then go and sit somewhere else next week. But to get to know some people in some big book groups or some step groups um, and find someone you click with whose solutions work for you on a small scale and then maybe you'll want them to take you through the whole program. Um, I'm a big adherent of, I love the big book. Um, for me it's got a solution. But I'm not saying by the fact that I use it that that's the only way to get sober. That, that, that other people don't have brilliant, amazing recoveries on other bases. I'm not saying that at all. I do this because it works for me. And uh, I've had sponsees that, are, uh, that, that, that don't read and write. I've had sponsees who have sponsees that don't read and, read and write. I've, my friend, I'll tell this story, my friend Ava in New York. Um, what she did with a sponsee many years ago, he came out of prison, he couldn't read and write, and so uh, she would go through all the questions for step four to help him write the inventory, and she physically wrote out his step four for him. And in doing so, he was doing his step five, he was sharing what he needed to share, and he's since learned how to read and write, and now he does this for other people. So he, he's the, if someone in that home group can't read or write, they get sent to him. So, uh, and I find in a lot of AA, um, people are given step four instructions, they're sent home, um, it does their nutting, they can't face it, it's confusing, it's frightening, and you never see them again. And then the sponsor has the nerve to say, well, obviously they didn't want it enough. Or maybe, or maybe they were just confused and frightened and baffled, and it was all too much. So um, I'll tell you how I take people through step four. Um, and it, take, it, it does take a while, I have to say. It's not the quickest way of doing it, but it, it's, a, it's effective. And it, it, it teaches people the method, and it... It holds people's hands through it. So step four has got, in the big book, there are other fellowships, there are other ways of doing the steps. But in the big book, there are three inventories. The first inventory is a resentment inventory, where we've got to find out why we're so upset about everything the whole time. <laughs> and where, on the back of that, we look at our own behaviour in those situations where we're upset. And then there's a fear inventory, which speaks for itself. It's just a list of fears not a huge amount of analysis. And then uh, sexual conduct inventory where I get to look at my behavior in so-called intimate relationships, <coughs> how I've treated the other person. And in that resentment inventory, let's just, uh, if, if people like page numbers, it's on page 64. Um, the sex inventory is on page 69. That shouldn't be too difficult to remember. Um, <laughs> In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. So I say to people, go and just make a list of the people that make you angry. Or 
it's very interesting. It says, um, we asked ourselves why we were angry. It talks about our emotions being hurt or threatened, being sore, being burned up. It talks about grudges, injuries, or where people or situations have been interfering with us. So I said, well, go back through your life and find anyone where you felt hurt. Anyone where you... Because I wasn't a big... Once I got sober, I was. But when I was new in AA, I didn't have resentments in the, in, in the usual sense. I had disappointments. There are a thousand people I was disappointed by. The real anger came. That started to come later, let me tell you. Uh, once your head clears, you can be angry much more effectively because you can, you can just construct the narrative. I was like a wounded animal when I got to AA. I was just hurt. But I could do this list, and this is what I do with other people. Run through the faces in your mind. And if when you think of the face you feel hurt or threatened, write down the name. Can you write down names? People can write down names. Or if they can't write, I'll help them write. And then, in most cases, it says, we asked ourselves why we were angry. And there, the cause is incredibly simple. It gives you a set of examples in, in, in the big book. Um, so, I'm resentful at Mr. Brown, his attention to my wife, told my wife of my mistress, uh, Brown may get my job at the office. Now, if you read between the lines of those, it's probably quite a long story, then. <laughs> this is not just some little slight that's happened. There's, there's going to be a whole narrative. We don't care about that. You know, what did the person say or do? Let's keep it really simple, really concrete. Um, and what I'll tell people, I'm not going to tell them to they've got 500 names, go and write about 500 names. When I do a step four, I need to get down to the causes and conditions of why I'm resentful in the first place. I've got a limited number of causes and conditions which produce an, an endless, endless number of resentments. When you go to the doctors, and they take your blood. They don't need to take all of your blood to test it. They need to take a sample. And from the sample, they can tell what's wrong with the whole of your body. And so I need to do enough, resent I need to do enough analysis of the resentments to get to the bottom of why I'm resentful in the first place. Once I've under understood that, the rest are now explained. Now, there, there are bits of this inventory which need to be exhaustive. But the resentment bit, in my experience, doesn't. The forgiveness needs to be exhaustive. I need to forgive everyone for everything. I need to be exhaustive about the people I've harmed and the types of my character defects. But the resentments are incredibly repetitive. Uh, so I start off very gently. I'm not going to send someone, go and write about 500 people. You ask someone to do that. The obsessive compulsives will do it, but no one else will do it. <laughs> I say, why don't you write about how one person upset you and call me back tomorrow with that. And they can do that. And then the next day, well, you, okay, you've done that. How about you write about two? And then the next day it's three, the next day. And gradually people build up. 
But even at that stage, there's an awful lot of training that goes on. So what I want to, you see, my problem was that, and still can be, I've got the event that happened, I've got the story I'm telling about, telling myself about the event, and then I'm getting upset. I'll come to how I get upset in a minute. But I've got to get back to the reality of what's happening. I, a friend of mine, she won't mind me saying this, Ivana, she had a wonderful corker of a resentment a couple of years ago, where she said, um, this woman at work is always criticising me. I said, is she? <laughs> She's always criticising you? You mean everything she ever says to you is a criticism? Well, no, not everything she says to me is a criticism. Okay, so she sometimes criticises. Okay, so, so this woman at work sometimes criticises me. I said, how often? How often does she criticise you? She says, well, it's, it's actually pretty much once a week. We have a, a group meeting once a week where she criticises me. And I said, how many times during this meeting will she criticise you? Well, well, maybe once. Okay, so once a week, a woman criticises me. I said, hey, who is she? Is she just a colleague? And she said, no, she's my boss. <laughs> Oh, okay. So now we've gone from a woman at work always criticises me to my boss criticises me once a week. I said, right, so she's criticising you, is she? Can you tell me what she actually says? Because I was thinking, you know, it's going to be something like, your work is terrible, you know, you look slovenly. I don't know, I couldn't, I didn't have a clear picture of what actually happens, what is actually going on here. And she said, well, it's a team meeting and we, we discuss various ideas about what we're going to do in the coming week. And sometimes I'll have an idea and then she'll express a different idea. Oh, so she's not actually even criticising you. So she's simply expressing different ideas. Your boss is expressing different ideas in a work meeting where... The purpose of the meeting is to express a range of different ideas. <laughs> so even in just working with a sponsee on that simple little situation, we've unraveled this whole narrative from where she's this victim of a cruel world to someone who's in a perfectly ordinary situation that is construing this as an attack. And it's not an attack. It's something else. So even just in that, a huge amount, if, if you never went further than that, but all you did in AA was just take away all of the narrative so that you can live with the reality as it is, that would, kind of, that would be 99% of it. But this is just an example of how I will lead someone through a step four as much as they need to be led through it. Um, and help them write it down, help them word stuff, stuff so that they can acquire the skill of doing inventory. The problem with the first step four is you're learning how to take inventory at the same time that you're taking your first inventory. You're learning the skill, but you're doing it with a real live situation, which is your own life. 
And this is why I need to help people with the process and not just leave them to go off into the dark night on their own and then complain when they come back six months later with a, with a, with a dog's dinner. Which it, my, my first step forward was a dog's dinner. So, um, and just a footnote, something else that the chap who asked the question said, he said he's you know, talked stuff through. Um, I know a lot of really good AAs in London that have never done a written step four and have done just that, that have got peace and happiness by, list, by talking to other people in AA and listening, taking on board what they said and just copying uh, what people did. Um, I tried that myself and it didn't work for me but it does work for other people. It's terribly important to, say, to keep saying that. This is not the only way, this is just what I've done. Um, and there's, there's one, um, there are a couple of little questions which go together with what I've been saying, then we'll have a break. Um, the first one is, and this, I mean, this is one of the do's is, if AA works, why do so many people relapse? Um, I'm not going to pronounce about AA as a whole. It's not my place to. Um, there is a line in the big book where it says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And because I've been sober a, a long time, I've been without drink a long time, um, I get people asking me to sponsor them who've been sober a long time and have drunk again and then are back again. And almost every single time I have a conversation with them about what their AA life was like before they relapsed. And almost to a man, they say, I was doing everything right, and I relapsed. And the one question, I mean, there are lots of questions I can ask, but the first question, and the one which is um, always relevant, is, was there anyone left you hadn't made amends to? And there are people you can't find. Obviously, there are people you there are people you can't even remember what the face looks like. These are the, 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 these one night stands and uh, all sorts of situations, muggings and, and thefts. But is there anyone that you are conscious? Is there anyone you have unfinished business with that you haven't gone to to sort it out? I mean, not everyone wants to hear from you. And if they don't, well, God bless them and you get on with your life. You've done your bit. It's water over the dam, as it says. Every single one of them, of these people who slipped after a long time, they had people in their lives that they hadn't done their utmost to settle the scores with, to make amends to. So maybe that's connected. Second question is, who haven't you forgiven? Who you still resenting? Who do you still bear a grudge against? Who do you still have a grievance against? And it can be against a group in society. It can be against humanity itself. It's all very well having a couple of little best friends and having contempt for the whole of the society around you. Who haven't, who haven't you forgiven? Um, other questions. Did you, did you engage in active 12-step work on the day that you relapsed? Um, 
And the answer is usually self-explanatory there. Um, and there are several others. There are several points in the big book where it says, if you do this, you'll drink. Or if you don't do this, you'll drink. And uh, every time a sponsee has relapsed, every time someone comes to me for the first time having relapsed, and we go through, there are seven of them, there are seven points in the big book where they say this. Uh, usually the score is somewhere between three and seven of those were amiss. So, you know, even with uh, those odds, you know, I, I think we're on quite a long leash already. Um, but that's... Uh, this notion of AA working, it's what I said earlier about that the... The travel brochure and the holiday. Um, a friend of mine uses the analogy of a, a, a shop where they sell winter coats. You don't measure how well the coats keep, keep people warm by how many people go in the shop. You ask the ones who bought the coats and are wearing them if the coat is warm. So does AA work? Going to meetings can work for some people. But I've ne it says rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly fo followed our path. Um, I've never seen someone fail in my home group, in the, the whole time I've been sober, that places themselves absolutely at the centre of the group. And because it's a big book group, it's very, very focused on the programme. You know, before, during and after, and in the in-between times, our conversations with each other are all about the steps in the big book. Now, because of that, um, it only attracts the people who are really desperate. And they're often really desperate because their alcoholism is really bad, or they're nuts, or both. So it's not a hotbed of mental health. You know, you expect, you expect the big book group or the step group because it's so hot in the program to be the place where people are the sanest. Actually, it's the people who are the, the, the sickest ones will go there because they need to be there. They're the intensive care wards of AA. But the maddest of the mad don't drink if they place themselves in, at the heart of those groups. And it creates a cushion between them and the world. Um, and I'll say one tiny more thing about that. Um, the only way I think I would drink again is if I start being right again on everything. And when I'm upset, I'm wrong. How do I know I'm wrong? Because I'm upset. Okay. It doesn't mean there aren't events in the world that don't call on me to respond practically. People need protection from harm. There are things which do need to be done genuinely in the world, but they don't need me to be upset to be done. You can act well, you can join a political party, you can campaign, you can give money to political or social or other causes without losing a moment's sleep over the situation which has prompted you to take action. If I'm upset, I'm wrong. And when I've got a problem, I phone my sponsor or I phone my best friend and say, this is the situation as I perceive it. I know I'm wrong or I wouldn't be upset. So I'm not gonna give you the challenge of proving to me that you're right and I'm wrong, 
I'm already going to wave the white flag, admit that I'm wrong and you're right, but I just want you to present to me how I'm wrong, and then I will just take that on board and apply it and believe it. And that is the one thing, if I can keep doing that, I'm going to trust that I'm going to be okay. Uh, there's one other point. Uh, this book is a made, this book, little blue book, um, the big book. It's a tiny version of the big book uh, with little stickers of dogs on it. No one will steal it. It's the only way to stop it being stolen. Um, uh, the book is wonderful. It's also a nightmare because it's written in an English that a lot of people struggle to process. Um, it, I've gone and taken the big book into prisons and people are just, just, the language of the big book is so far away from the street life that people have come from and we expect them to understand it. This is why a human mediator is needed in between. And there's, an, there's another problem. I don't know about any of you, but I can be very opinionated, less so now, but very opinionated about political matters and social matters. And I, for what it's worth, I'm not anymore, but I used to be a card-carrying member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. Um, and I was in this little elite of people who were right on everything. And unless you agreed with us, on everything, then nothing you had to say was of any value. And the only point of talking was to reinforce our position and prove to you how wrong you were. And one of the problems with um, the, the, the communist world is that there is a, a, a tendency, just occasionally, to view everything that goes on in the world through the lens of Marxism and Leninism. And nothing can be understood in its own terms. No one can be understood in its own terms. Everything is sewn into this straitjacket of a particular ideology. And it doesn't matter if the ideology is right or wrong. And the job from that perspective is simply to accept or reject and to interpret everything from my point of view on the basis that where we are is the apogee of Western civilization. It's never, you know, we've got ideals we still need to work towards, but they're our ideals. And uh, I've been guilty of reading the big book through my own ideological lens, particularly when it comes to the chapter to wives. And there's a question about this chapter to wives and the chapter um, uh, to the family afterwards. <coughs> and a couple of things. I'm very fortunate to have had an education where I studied Latin and Greek at school and I studied French and German and, and Russian philosophy and literature at university uh, and at school. And the lesson from that was to read everything from the point of view of the person who wrote it without judging it. Because if I judge it first, I can't learn anything. And to recognise that however morally reprehensible a particular society, 
1930s Soviet Russia being one example, or, or Athens at the time of Socrates. However different the values and the ideologies were, it would probably work the other way. They would come here and see all of the ways in which our society, with its materialism and its cruelty and its insularity and its lack of community feeling, it was far more primitive than their societies. So this idea that we're right and they're wrong. So I was taught to read things from people's own point of view and to try to understand things from people's own point of view. So I apply that in the big book. I, I read the chapter to wives and the chapter the family afterwards from the point of view of the people that wrote it, not seeing it through my ideological standpoint however much in another context I might believe in that ideological standpoint. Because if I don't, I'm going to blind myself to it. And how do I apply it to myself? I'm not a wife. But one of my problems is I can get very hung up on form and miss the content. And there's a line in the big book itself about uh, missing the beauty of the forest because of the ugliness of some of the trees. And there is some wonderful stuff. If you, if you want a good example of something which is, you know, the, the two things I can do with this chapter, as with anything else in the big book, is identify with it and then look for principles um, uh, that I can apply. And just one, if you've ever had a relationship or a close friendship with an, an alcoholic, you, you read this line and say, we have prayed, we have begged, we have been patient, we have struck out viciously, we have run away, we have been hysterical, we have been terror-stricken, we have sought sympathy. Yeah, I know Bill wrote it, and it wasn't Lois. Lois, yes, Lois should have written it, and she didn't. Right, now, now we've got that out of the way. Do I identify with that? I identify with every word. And that's the usefulness. And then I look at page 118. Um, uh, people will often want input on relationships from their sponsors and from other people in AA. And uh, the magic two pages are 117 and 118. And I'll just finish on this, then we'll have a break. Um, Patience, tolerance, understanding, and love are the watchwords. Show them these things in yourself, and they will be reflected back to you from him. Live and let live is the rule. If you both show a willingness to remedy your own defects, there will be little need to criticise each other. That's not written. That's not in ancient Greek. That's in perfectly comprehensible contemporary English without a taint of unappealing ideology. It's just an, it's, it's an idea that I can take into my life and apply. So I've learned to look past the bits that I disagree with and as I would with human beings in the room and learn what I can from the people who are there. It's just human beings talking to me through the book, that's all it is. Um, let's have, should we have another little serenity prayer before the break? Let, let's close with a serenity prayer. God, grant me the strength to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the 